You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Amen. Good morning. All right, we're awake and ready to go. My name's Simon, if you haven't met me. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and I just want to welcome you. Uh, if you haven't said hi to me yet, before you leave, just come say hi, shake my hand. I'd love to kind of make a, a face and a connection with all the different new people that we have coming in and out of our church. Now, as, when I bring up the idea of junior high and high school, depending on how old you are, if you can even remember back that far, uh, it may bring up a lot of different feelings and emotions, Now, for me, um, I think about junior high, I think about high school, and I don't have the fondest memories. Uh, I didn't like it very much, I didn't do well in it, and there's a lot of reasons behind that. But what I found was that because I had moved from Oregon to here, and because when I was uh, at the elementary school I was, all my friends went to a different junior high, so I kept finding myself starting over all the time. And it was just kind of a weird thing for me. And so for me, uh, I felt like an outsider all the time. So when you're an outsider at a school trying to fit in, trying to make friends, you try to keep yourself occupied, you walk a lot, you get your steps in, you try to act like you're visiting the next friend because you don't really know where you're going. Um, and I remember there were times I'm like, man, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I just feel lonely. I feel like I don't belong here. It got so bad, I started hanging out with the role-playing kids and the D&D kids. If you know what that means, that probably makes a lot more sense. But if, those are the kids like low end of the totem pole on the social scale, just really low down there. But I'm like, I just need something. And so that's what I did. And it wasn't until later in high school that I finally made a friend or two, but I always felt like an outsider. Here's the thing. I don't know where you are and if we have, we have young men and women in this room that you might feel like an outsider at times. You may be not a young man or woman and still feel like an outsider at times and that you don't belong. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, we want to belong, don't we? We want to feel like we're a part of something, that we're not alone, We want to be in the group. We want to be having fun. We want to be with friends or in a club or with a family, whatever that may be. Even if it's a couple of people, you still need community. And this is where we find ourselves today. And we see that God cares so much for those that don't feel like they belong. God cares so much for the marginalized people in the world. God cares so much for those that feel like they're outsiders looking in and has gone to great lengths to show his love to those individuals. Now, we've been in the book of Ruth. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're about halfway through the book of Ruth. If you're joining us, you can go back and watch those online if you want to. But this is where we find Ruth today, right now. She is in this section. She is an outsider looking in. She feels as though she doesn't belong, but God is about to do something amazing in her extremely hard and tragic situation, and we get to have a front row seat to what's going to happen. Now, uh, we are going through a lot of verses today, and I'll just say up front, I am not going to hit every little detail of every little part of it, but that's the beauty of life groups, that you can do that in your life groups. You can go over that. If you don't belong to one, talk to Justin. He'd be more than happy to plug you in. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to chapter two of the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, we have Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those, and that, that's a gift for you to take and to keep if you don't have God's Word, or you can just follow along on the screen. All right, Ruth, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she sat besides the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her, and also put some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephod of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not for." Saken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he told me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with, this young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, let's pray, and we're going to jump into this section of Scripture. 
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the story of Ruth. Lord, there is so much hope in this passage that we're in today. I ask that we would see the hope of your son as we look at Boaz, we would see pictures and glimpses of you, God, and your son, Jesus, and how he is our redeemer, how he has gone to great lengths to save us and to purchase us back while we were far away. Lord, I ask if there's anything that I have written down that's not from you, that you would take it from my notes and from my mind and from my mouth. And if there's anything that I need to say today that would be glorifying to you that's not in my notes, that you would give me the strength and the boldness to proclaim that. We love you. We pray these things in your glorious name. Amen. All right. Shall we get into these quick 23 verses? You know, you're all thinking, he's a bad reader. You just go stand in front of someone and read 23 verses and see how that goes. It's tough. It's hard. Uh, So we're introduced to a new person in the story. And the way that this is written in that day and that age is they always kind of give spoilers up front. And they give the name of this guy. And it's the writer's way of saying, take notice of this individual. He is going to become important to our story, which is why they throw his name out so quickly. So we meet this guy named Boaz. By the way, he's the only person in the Old Testament named that. The only Boaz in the Old Testament, which makes him unique and different in a sense. Now, because that's the only name we have there, it's actually kind of hard to pinpoint the exact meaning of his name. So some of the, the way that they pinpointed that is that it would be strength or strong or pillar and even fleetness or rapid or quick. That's kind of what his name means. There's a great study in your notes for Life Group this week about the two pillars in front of the temple that relate to the name Boaz. Have fun discussing that. And it tells us that he's a worthy man that he has, uh, he's full of character, not that he is a character, that he has character and good qualities in who he is, that he's important, that he's wealthy. But the character part becomes really clear because they're living in a time of the day of the judges, right? When everyone did was right in their own eyes, right? So he is a contrast to what's happening in that society, and he's meant to stick out like a sore thumb. He's different than everyone else, and that's what's trying to be communicated. So what ends up happening, we find that he is this relative of Elimelech, and that's going to be important as we get into the story. So my first point is this, the providence of God and watching God work all things together for good. So we move back to Ruth, and we see that they're now in Bethlehem, okay? So that's where they are. The two men find themselves in their new circumstances and their new way of life, that they are in a place of poverty. Uh, that they are alone, that they are in need of figuring out a way to have food on the table so they can sustain life. So Ruth says, hey, let me go to the fields and let me glean because it's harvest time and there's food to be found. Maybe I'll find favor with one of the landowners and they'll allow me to bring food home for us. So Naomi gives permission and she goes out to the field. Now, have you ever heard someone say, as you're talking about the things of God or you're talking about the Bible, they say, I don't like the Old Testament. You ever heard someone say, I don't like the Old Testament? I hear this all the time. It just seems like God's really grumpy. He's like an angry old guy who doesn't really like kids and he's always out there yelling, get off my lawn, kids. That's kind of how people describe God at times in the Old Testament. He's always punishing people, and he's always upset about something, and there's all this wrath, and they're like, I just don't like the Old Testament. 
And then I hear people say the opposite of that at times. Like, well, I like the New Testament. That Jesus fellow sure is a lovely guy. I think I want to hang out with that Jesus guy. But what I want to say is this, though, yes, there is wrath and punishment in the Old Testament, which highlight God's justice and his punishment of sin and how bad sin truly is, we see grace and mercy all throughout the Old Testament over and over again that God loves people that are far from him. Even those that are outside of his covenant or the people group, the Israelites who he chose to be the ones that he was going to save the world through. We saw that last week with Ruth as an individual. But God loves people so much that as he is developing this new people group called the Israelites or the Jewish people that we know today, that he gave these laws that they could live in a way that would be good for them and that would glorify God in all that they would do. And so within his laws, we see that he even makes provision to care for those that are hurt, that are lost, that are unable to provide for themselves, that are widows, that are orphans, that are sojourners from other lands, and that he commands them to care for those that are in the margins. That's the character and the nature of God. This term gleaning comes from this very idea. Gleaning was something that we don't understand because we're not in an agricultural society as much anymore, at least where we are here on the West Coast. And so what we find is that this idea of gleaning was a way to provide tangibly for those that couldn't do stuff. So in different passages, I'm not going to read them all. But in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, Leviticus 20, 22, we see that there are the provisions for gleaning and what that would be. And in Deuteronomy 24, we probably have one of the more uh, easy to understand sections, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget to uh, a sheave in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you all the work of your hands. So he's saying is this, meaning as you're harvesting your fields and picking all the grain and all the things that come from it, if you leave some behind or you forget some, leave it there. Don't go back and pick it up. And as, and as a matter of fact, leave grain on the fringes of the area so those that don't have jobs, that don't have lands, that don't, uh, aren't able to provide for their family have a place that they can go so they can have food to care for themselves. That's what God's saying. He wants these individuals to give generously because he is a generous God. All of his laws reflect who he is and how he is doing all these things through his people. He, he allows those that can't to have an ability. He sees it's for the poor, it's for the widows, it's for the sojourners. That's just ticking all the boxes for Ruth, isn't it? That's, that's Ruth who, is, who we're describing here in the situation. And so there was leftovers that were there. Now, as it moves on, it says, she happened to come to a part of the field that belonged to Boaz. The writer's doing something very clever here. The whole book of Ruth is about the providence of God and how he is sovereign over all things. I mean, he is in control of all things, all the time, everywhere. And so it seems like an odd statement. Like, well, she just happened to come across this area. The writer is throwing this out there so you'll actually pause on it and go, wait a minute, that's not at all what's happening. 
As a matter of fact, it's the hand of God that's moving through the entire story that's taking these bad decisions and bringing glory to himself and blessing his people through those very actions. And that's what we see going on. So he says this idea like, oh, it just seems so lucky that she happened to be in this field. Or, oh, what a coincidence that that's where they ended up. Well, that's the part that's funny. It's not a coincidence. There are no such thing as coincidence when you have a sovereign God because he's in control of all things. Maybe we can ask that in our lives too as we replay where we've been in our own lives, what we've gone through. Sometimes you go, oh, it was just so lucky that I ended up here. It's such a coincidence that I met. No, it's not. That's the active hand of God in your life. And it's good for us to pause on those and go, look at how God was working through all of these events to bring us to this point here right now. And we can all do that at some point, which gives God the glory to show that he is sovereign in all things. Well, at that moment, Boaz comes out from Bethlehem to check on the harvest, to check on his individuals, and he greets his workers. Now, short stories are important because every word matters. Everything's in there for a reason. It all contributes to where we're going. And so the greetings are actually really important. Boaz says, the Lord be with you. Well, what's he really saying? The Lord's presence is everywhere. The Lord's presence is with his workers. He understands that God is present in all things, that he is at the forefront of everything that we do. And then he gets the reply back from, from the workers is, the Lord bless you, meaning it's God who makes life and work fruitful, that there is anything that comes from that. So you see that there's this interaction where they're acknowledging that God is everywhere and God is the provider of all things. And without him, we have nothing. That's really what they're saying. So we see that he's a godly man focused on God with his life and every aspect of his life. And so he asked, whose young woman is this? And that's a weird way to say that. He didn't say, what's her name or who is that? He says, whose woman is this? Because he understands the situation, that she's probably alone or like, why is she out here, you know, gleaning during this time? It didn't make sense. So there's something about her that's different. I don't know her. I've never seen her before. Chances are, because she's a Moabite, she probably looks a little different. And he's saying, who is this person in my field? What are they doing? What is their story? Where do they come from? And so the story starts getting laid out by his worker. He says, this is the Moabite woman that everyone's been talking about. This is the one that came back with Naomi. She's been, she asked to glean in the field. And as she did that, she has been working nonstop from very early in the morning. She only took a very short break, and now she's back at it. So the question that we want to start asking is, what can we learn from these individuals? What's being highlighted about their life in these sections? Well, from Ruth in this section, we see that she's a hard worker. We see that she's humble because she's under the authority of Naomi. She asks permission. We also see that she goes to the foreman and asks permission from the foreman. Can I glean in your fields? We see that she's an outsider because she's, she's a Moabite. We know that she's poor. We know that she shows respect. She wants to help in the household. She wants to provide in any way that she can. She wants to pull her weight the best, the best that she can in that moment. We see that this promise that she made last week as a vow to follow Naomi and to be with her for all of her life, it wasn't just lip service, was it? 
She's literally putting that into action as she's in the hard spot of life and she's living that out. We also see some things about Boaz in this story. That he is wealthy, he's got land, that he's important, that he has workers underneath him, that he follows the law of God. The fact that he is allowing gleaning to take place in his field, meaning that he's willing to submit to God. Now, we're in the time of judges where people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And the more harvest you bring in, the more money you make. So leaving, you're kind of leaving money out on the field, aren't you, when you let people glean? And so we see that he's willing to sacrifice what he could take for his own to give to others. And so we see that there's something about him. And it, this is what I love. As we learn more about Boaz, it's not that he submits to God's law because he's like, oh, I got to do it because I'm a Jew. So that's just what we do. It seems as though there's a joy in his heart, knowing who God is, knowing God's provision, that he joyfully submits to what God has said. This is what's right for you. And so there is something different when you watch someone joyfully submit to God versus someone who's just doing it out of the compulsion of not getting zapped by God. There's a difference in that. And so it's true to him because he realizes who God is and it's changing how he lives and what he does. We see that he interacts with his workers and they have a good working relationship from this section. He is acknowledging the Lord and his provision. And do, uh, we really see that there's humility in who he is and how he works with people. Brings me to my second point, reflecting God, engaging the world, world with the light of the Lord. So we have this first interaction between Ruth and Boaz. And what we see is more of Boaz and his character start to pour out of who he is and what he's made of, actually. Now, when I first started reading the Bible... Uh, Maybe it's just me. I was like super confused. Am I the only one when you first started reading the Bible, you're like, I don't understand anything. I can't pronounce any of the names. I don't know any of the geography. I feel like everything doesn't make sense, but I read my Bible. Check box, Bible study done. I have no idea what I learned. Any, am I the only one? You are all so wonderful people. I am the worst. You are the best. Sorry. But I was so confused. And it just took a long time as I started to read God's word to start to understand the different names. And as I started to understand the different stories. And it just, let me encourage you. It takes time to learn anything. As you want to know who this God is and you're reading God's word, just be faithful in reading. And here's what I'd say. Focus on what you do understand. And then you can come back to the things you don't understand later. But what I came to find as I read more and more God started revealing all these things, and I started seeing stories start to kind of almost replay through the Bible. I saw names come up at different parts, like, oh, this story is connected to this. But what I found most importantly is those stories started to feel similar. Every time I read a story, like, it seems like there's this problem of sin, that there's this God who has to punish it, that they need, these people need help and saving in some way, and then God sends some, some way to save them, and then they worship him. And I see that story go over and over and over and over again in the Bible. And then I realize that all of these little stories are connected to the big story of what God is doing, and that made it easy to understand. 
And as I went to school to learn more about the Bible, I realized that there was a fun name for that. It's called typology. That as you start to look at the things that are being done in the Bible, that I saw these pictures of Jesus kind of start to show up in the Old Testament. Like, that's called typology. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, typology, and this is a, a technical way of describing it that doesn't make any sense, but I'll explain it. A literally hermeneutic device in which a person, event, or institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond to a person, event, or institution in the New Testament. You're like, that's clear as mud, Simon. Thanks so much. It just means that there's things in the Old Testament that are pointing to things that are happening in the New Testament. And sometimes it's a place. Sometimes that's like the sacrificial system. There's all these things, but there's people that sometimes represent from the Old Testament people in the New Testament, specifically Jesus. We see that all the time. And so as we look at the person of Boaz, it's very interesting that what we're seeing is that Boaz is starting to reflect Jesus Christ. And so we would say that he is a, a type of Christ. Now, hear me really quick. He is not Christ. He is not Jesus. That's not, he's, a, he's a broken human being like you and me and anybody else. But he is meant to be a picture of Jesus. And he's meant to be a picture of the character traits and nature of God in this story that we would see how he responds. And God is going to use Boaz to be a reflection of who he is to a foreigner. Now, if that story doesn't seem to resonate with you, maybe it will by the end, but that's our story, that there is a God that comes to those outside of his people and draws them in. That's you and that's me if you love Jesus. And as we look at Ruth, we'll start to see parts of her life as well. So as we go through the story, start looking for things that remind you of Jesus. Start looking for things that remind you of who God is in this story. So Boaz sees Ruth, and he understands her situation. You're a woman, you're alone, and you're in a new land. And so understand the context of the situation. Being a woman in that day and that age was not going to help you succeed. It just really wasn't. It didn't put you in a good spot to do what you needed to do to survive. Being alone doesn't work because you need to be in community because uh, resources are scarce and you need to have the community work together to do it. And you're in a new land. You don't understand the culture and the people and how things work in that area. Boaz sees that. He understands it. And he says, hey, you need to stay in my field. You need to stay close to, to my young women in my field. He also says, and I've also let all the men here know that no one is to touch you. No one is to do anything to you. In my field, no one is allowed to take advantage of you. When you're thirsty, you don't have to go find a well. You don't have to pull up the bucket. You don't have to try to fill up whatever device you had. Like, we just don't think about water as being a big deal because we walk around and there's like a water fountain everywhere. We have one out front. People are like, oh, there's a water fountain. I'll just grab some water. Like, you realize in that day and that age, you would have to, if you could find a well that you had rights to use, you had to pull up a bucket up however far it was to get to the bottom of that well and then fill that into another container to take it back to your house and that's all you had. So water was a big deal. He says, my men have drawn out water in the vessels and you can go freely to it whenever you want to be refreshed. That's a big deal. So what do we see in Boaz in this section? Like what, what is he starting to show about him? He's looking out for Ruth. Someone that he doesn't have to, but he is looking out for. He's providing for her. He's putting protection under his watch for her. 
and his people. She may not know what's dangerous in that land and in that place, but guess who does? Boaz does. He knows the dangers that are in that area. And he says, you may not know the dangers. I do. Stay by me. Stay by my people. And I will keep protection for you. He's providing for her needs like the simple act of water. You can come and be refreshed. He's showing kindness to her. He's going above and beyond because he's already done what he should be doing, which is gleaning. But now he's going above and beyond that at this point now. He is being generous. He gives out of the abundance of his wealth. He has much and he gives much. He sees those that don't have much and wants them to have more. See, this is what God does for us. This is our story. God provides for us. He protects us. He knows what's dangerous and says, don't go here, don't do this. My law is actually meant to protect you and to keep you safe because we don't always understand the dangers that lurk around in the world and what the devil is going to do, but he does. And he brings that protection there. He shows kindness to us. He goes above and beyond with his generosity and he pours out of the abundance of his wealth and the abundance that he pours out on his people are grace and mercy all the time. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. We had no rights to it. But yet because of God's goodness, he pours that out. And I love how Ruth responds. She shows humility and she shows respect and she shows gratitude for the favor that Boaz has shown her. She knows, I didn't earn this. I don't deserve any of this. She knows that she's a foreigner. See, we don't earn or deserve God's grace. Our good deeds, our being a good person doesn't earn God's favor. God gives it freely to all. Boaz says, I heard all that you have done for your mother-in-law, how you have left everything to come to a land, to a people that you don't know. And then he says this really important thing that we learned about last week. He talks about the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. He says, I want the Lord to repay you for your loyalty to Naomi and your dead husband and all that you've done, all that you've given up, all the things that you've left it's interesting. Boaz is praying this prayer of blessing over Ruth. And the, the irony, the funny part is that God is going to use the man praying the prayer over her to be the answer to the blessing that she wants and that he wants. Like God is so good how he orchestrates everything. He's like, yeah, you ask. Yeah, you bet. Ask that. I'm going to use you, dude. You're going to be the guy that's going to be the guy that's going to do it. And this phrase, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, that's Ruth. She has come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. What does that mean? He's like, I know you left everything. You have left your whole life. You have a new identity with Naomi. And it wasn't like it was an easy choice to make. You've left your family and your land, all that you know, and all the comfort and all of your gods to be under God now that you are submitting to him in all areas of your life. 
Jesus would actually use a similar phrase like this in Luke 13, uh, 34, that she said, oh, that I would gather you as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Interesting when he says that he's, he has a couple things before and after that phrase, and it's not positive. He's talking about uh, how you've killed the prophets and all the people that I sent to you, and that you should have come under the protection of my wings, but you rejected that. But what we see is the contrast with Ruth is that she doesn't reject it. She runs to it. She knows that that is where protection is, is under God and his provision and protection. And that's where she runs. That's a, a picture of what we should do in every area of our life, that we should run to be under God, under his law, under his commands, under his protection, and under submission to him in all things. See, Boaz sees her differently than everybody else. He knows that she's more than just a foreigner, that she is a part of God's family. See, it's her character that has drawn Boaz in. That's what makes her attractive. You know what's awesome in this story? It never once talks about Ruth's appearance, but it keeps highlighting her character and who she is all the time. Young man, I don't know where you are in your quest to find a woman. Nothing wrong with being attracted to the woman that you love. But beauty fades and character remains. Look for character. That's who you want. She says that you have been so kind to me. I am not one of your servants, but you're treating me like one. She understands, like, that's us. Like, while we were far from him because of our sin, that God showers us with grace and mercy. See, Boaz is reflecting God and who he is in his story. I guess my question is this, where do you need to be a light? Where do you need to reflect God? As new creations in Christ, our job is to be a light city set on a hill. How, how are you reflecting Jesus, Christian man, Christian woman, with where God has placed you? He has placed you in a certain time, in a certain place, with certain people for a specific reason. The same way that Israel was meant to be a reflection of God and who he is and how they're different, we are called to be different as well, that we would point others to Jesus. And I would say this, like, well, I'm just waiting for someone to ask me about him, and I'm totally doing it. Have you given him a reason to ask? Have you lived your life where you've given anybody a reason to even ask why you're different? That's what we're called to be. We can be like Boaz in the sense that we can reflect God and who he is and what he's done in our lives. But what I love is that Boaz takes it to the, to the next level and he starts showering with more grace upon this. He says, come and have lunch with me. Eat at my table. Join us. Be a part of my world. Be a part of us. If you've ever been a loner, not by your own desire, it's like every high school movie starts this way. New kid in town goes to the cafeteria, sits by himself with his little lunch, Everyone's having fun but him. Isn't that like the same story every time? And someone says, hey, come join us. Like if you've ever felt like that person by yourself, 
you know how Ruth feels. You know how it feels. It feels horrible to be alone in those moments. And if you've ever had someone invite you when you're alone, desiring to be with others, to invite you to sit by them, there is no greater feeling to know that I belong, I'm a part. I used to be alone, and now I'm a part of something. I belong to a people group. This is what God does with us. Sin is the thing that makes us separate from, every, from God, from everyone else. This, it ruins us. And yet what we see is that God takes on this ability to go to the cross for our sins. The thing that separated us, there needs to be punishment for that sin. It's called God's wrath. That's the punishment. Because God is just. And he has to punish sin. It doesn't get swept under the rug. I went to the cross. I died for your sins so you wouldn't have to. So you wouldn't have to absorb the wrath that God rightfully can pour out on you. And because of that, anyone who is called on the name of the Lord is invited to come to the table and partake with the Lord. That is a beautiful picture. There is nothing more lovely and kind and beautiful than a God that invites you in to be with him, yet still deals with the sin of our lives. That's the God that we serve. You have been invited in if you call on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He tells Ruth, you can glean anywhere you want. You can go into the harvest. You can go to the sheaves. I'm having guys leave stuff out for you. And he just blesses and blesses and blesses. Why does he do that? Because she's been welcomed in and because of this relationship that they have now and this connectedness of being a part of them, she has full access. This is what we have as Christians. We have full access to God, his blessings, and everything that flow from it. My third and last point is this, the redeemer, the hope of a new life. So Ruth works until evening and she starts to gather her grain and she gets an ephod. You're like, what's an ephod? I don't know. I don't measure that way. I don't have ephods of things laying around my house. I do. I just don't know they're called ephods. That doesn't mean anything to us, right? Like, so that's a weird term. So an ephod is basically, an ephod is equal to about one of those Orange Home Depot buckets, about five and a half gallons. You're like, hi, an ephod bucket. Like, we get that, right? We all know the Homer bucket. If you're a weirdo, it's 22 liters. So, like, that's, if you understand that. So, if you, you want to do that, that's cool. But it's about 30 pounds is what it is. There's one person who just made eye contact. He's like, I use the metric system. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we like it complicated here. <laughs> so, it's about 30 pounds. What does that mean? That's two to three weeks worth of food for them to have to eat and enjoy. That's huge. That's amazing. That there's, and she's bringing leftovers home from lunch. Like this grace overflows everywhere. She goes home and she tells Naomi and she's like, where did you go? What magical field did you come across? Who is the guy that would let you do this? And she says, it was a man named Boaz. Now, last week, we kind of focused a lot on Naomi, didn't we? And we talked about where she kind of left off. And she, she wasn't hinting anything. She was really clear on where she was, wasn't she? What did she say? 
Call me Mara, which means bitter. She's not in a good headspace, okay? Life has been very hard, and she's in a tough spot. She is dealing with all of this pain and loss, and though you may judge her, please don't, because we'll most likely all respond very similar. That's just who we are. And there's this moment with Naomi where her eyes start to perk up. And there's this glimmer of hope in Naomi when she hears the name Boaz. She knows that name. She knows who that is. And then she says this thing that's easy to miss if we're not careful. In 29, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, who's he talking about? Boaz. Be blessed by the Lord who's, who's, who's she talking about now? It's not Boaz. She's talking about God whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. She's shifted gears because then she shifts back to a different way of referring to Boaz. So she's talking about something else. In her mind, she has realized that God is doing something here, that God has not forgotten, or where he says that God's hand has been so against me. Now she's starting to realize that God is for her, that God is working something out that she couldn't even imagine. Through the tragedy of all the decisions, God's like, I am still here. I still love you. You are still mine. By the way, if you read the story, she says, call me Mara. No one calls her Mara, not even, the, not even the writer. Isn't that interesting? No, you are pleasant, you are sweet, you are mine. That's who she is. And so she's referring to God. While she may have painted a picture that seemed hopeless to Ruth and Orpah, God had other plans. And she sees it. And she acknowledges it because that's what God does. He redeems. He redeems us. She knows that this Boaz will be a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And we talked about this last week, that there was no, uh, there was no other sons for the women to marry to carry on the name and the property and all the things that come with it, right? And so what could happen is if you were a close relative outside of the immediate family, that you could come and take responsibility and be a redeemer for them. And so in this moment, she says, there is someone that can redeem us, meaning there is someone that can save us. That's the translation of the word redeemer or bring us to safety. Safety from what? Safety in our world through Jesus, through the wrath of God. Save us from an eternal punishment removed from God and his presence. See, we need a redeemer. Jesus Christ is that redeemer. He sent his son to die in our place to redeem us, to save us, to bring us into his safety, to give us new life. And anyone who calls on the name of Jesus and places their life in the work of Jesus on the cross will be saved, period. That's how this works. Because like I was telling you in my experience about school and how I felt like an outsider, how I felt like an outcast, how I felt alone, how it was a sad time in my life, that's exactly who God goes after. Those in the margins those that are outcast, those that are thrown aside, 
that there is worth and dignity because you are made in the image of God. That's what brings you worth because you are connected to the almighty creator of the universe. He saves all of us because all of us are outsiders because of sin. All of us are in the margins because of sin and his goodness brings us in. And just like Boaz, we see that Jesus is bringing us to the table to belong and be a part of his family under his protection, under his provision that we so deeply desire. I love that you see these two character traits that revolve around Ruth and Boaz. Ruth embodies humility and how she responds. She understands her position, so what does she respond to with gratitude from the generosity shown to her? Boaz represents grace poured out. Grace and humility coincide and work together. To receive grace, you have to take a seat of humility because you didn't earn it. That's the difference between wages, right? Like I expect to get paid because I worked. Grace is a free gift. I don't earn my gifts at Christmas. I humbly take them and say, thank you for being so kind and generous to me. The question is this. I don't know what you've gone through in life and I don't know where you are. And maybe you're kind of like Naomi and you got a lot of bitterness in your life for how things have been handled in your life or what you've gone through or the cards that you've been dealt. I want you to see, it's just like Naomi, she saw a glimpse of God doing something to redeem her and to save her and she was willing to start laying down that bitterness and starting to take on the joy that could only come from the Lord. Where do you need to lay down bitterness in your life? Where do you need to put those things at the foot of the cross and run to the Savior? Let's pray.